one of the problems with retaining nurses and also getting more nurses, right, in New Zealand is like pay. How much is a first year nurse paid if she's working on the ward in a hospital in Auckland? I wish I had that number off the top of my head, but they are paid less than a police officer who spent 16 weeks at police school. That's crazy. No offence to police officers who do an amazing job. Because both are important. And then there's that whole ad campaign of get better work stories for for the police. And I'm like, no, no, no. I think nurses have better work stories. (laughs) ED, we do. Yeah, no, I've got to say, actually, there's a lot of nursing work stories that would definitely qualify there. But we need to feed our families and pay our bills. And money is definitely one of the issues. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland, and sponsored by MedWorld. So Natalie Anderson, welcome to the Revolving Door Syndrome podcast. It's been so really great to have you here. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thank you. So you've worn like many hats. You've worked in St. John's. You've been a nurse in ICU and emergency department. And you do a lot of research and lecturing. You're doing all these sorts of things. But what I want to know most, I'm sure you've seen it all. (laughs) Do you have any like fun stories or anything like that that you like to talk about? I have told a few stories over the years. It's fair to say that emergency nurses probably have some pretty good over coffees conversations, tea room conversations, and yeah, dinner conversations about some of the things we've seen. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, you've put me on the spot now to try and come <laughs> up with okay. something right now, but it's fair to say that I've realised my life is incredibly enriched by seeing so many other people's lives. It's like getting glimpses into their lives, seeing them like at their most vulnerable and often on the worst day of their lives, but also getting a glimpse into their families and wonderful supports and their coping mechanisms. And yeah, it's just an incredible way to see life beyond your own and experience that little bit of life beyond your own when you're a clinician and it's a real privilege really yeah yeah and we see some funny stuff and we see some terrible stuff but yeah you have to be curious about other people that keeps you going right yeah yeah Yeah. it's quite funny because you'll be looking after several people won't you and you'll get one person who's critically unwell and you need to do everything to save them and you've got another patient who maybe they stub their toe or something and they've been waiting for six hours and they're not very happy and it's hard because you want to help them (laughs) you're trying to save someone else's life yeah and with our system under so much pressure at the moment the people who are most vocal in complaining about wait times and my least favorite expression is do you know who I am like we really do get that like what do you say what do you say when they say I, what I'm thinking but I never say is you are far too highly educated and self-aware to be behaving like this because that is usually the voice of privilege right people who expect that because of their position and previously money has bought them 
being prioritised. It also means they're not feeling listened to and that's not something we aspire to, right? We want people to feel like they're for them and we care for them. But even last weekend, I looked after someone so unwell and they were apologising for being there. And, and that is a real kind of predictor of, of how sick people are. Often the ones who are really reluctant to present and apologise for being there are actually quite unwell and really need some input. And the ones that feel like they should be prioritised and are very vocal about it, maybe less so. I remember having night shifts where you've got somebody... <laughs> who's got sepsis, really bad infection. And they're like, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't want to come. Like, I didn't want to bother you. It's three in the morning. I'm so sorry. But then you'll also, on like a Friday or Saturday night, have someone who's, I don't know, been drinking or something and fell over and hit their head. And they're like, I've been waiting for three hours. And I'm like, yes, most people are probably waiting six hours. And that's not to excuse that. We don't want people to be waiting six hours, do we? No, but that's the nature of what we're working with in emergency departments right now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. People are waiting sometimes for quite a long time and they invariably weren't planning on being in the emergency department, but it's interrupted their days, they've got plans, they're worried, they're uncertain. And it can be really hard when people are rude about it. You can't grab them by the collar and say, come and see how sick all of these patients are, come and see why our doctors are busy. But boy, do you want to, you yeah. really do. Yeah. And it, sometimes it's also really hard for me to switch out as well, because sometimes I'll be in like the resuscitation mode or like you say patients who are really unwell and they're near end of their life right and you want to be there for them in that sort of emotional space but then if next door you've got somebody who's being demanding like why am I not saying it's it's so hard to switch in between all those different spaces yeah it is it's really difficult and I I can hear from what you're saying that we really want to make ourselves emotionally open enough to feel empathy for people who are in often quite sad situations or difficult situations. But when someone is really rude or threatening or hostile towards us, it's natural to close off. Coming from a pediatric point of view, I'm always like rainbows and butterflies <laughs> and unicorns. And I'm like blowing the bubbles and all that to try and get the kids on my side. And the thing they always say about pediatrics is that it's the parents that are difficult. And I'm like, mm, yeah, probably. I'm not a parent, but I can understand that it can be difficult when you're child's unwell. I've had times where it's just so busy. There's so many people waiting to be seen and I'm trying to help out and I pick up somebody and <laughs> because they've been waiting for six hours and this is the thing that's again outside of my control. I'm suddenly the target of well, why are you doing this? Why are you not doing that? Like why have I been waiting so long? I'm just like in the space of like Ugh! fight or flight response and mm. then instead of fight it's a flight response of walking away maybe having a little cry in another room and I just find that so hard to not have that response but do you not I, I, mean, I want you to keep having it. I know you <laughs> I know it's really hard on us right but we shouldn't feel shame about that feeling that we're getting because it is partly because we care if you stop feeling anything in those situations you're also going to stop feeling good when you know some I don't know about kids too much, but <laughs> in my job, sometimes it might be an older patient who's been really afraid or really uncomfortable and I've managed to finally get them comfortable and reassured and they just, they grab onto your hand and they really look you in the eye and they say, thank you so much. And I still feel moved by that connection. So yeah, it is sometimes hard and we don't want to be like in the toilet crying all the time because, you know, we're, we're busy. <laughs> <laughs> we got better 
things to do yeah. than crying in the toilet. But I do wonder whether some of the best clinicians do have the occasional cry in the toilet and that we shouldn't feel shame about that. Yeah. We should just say that's part of being humans and having emotional connection to patients that is often really therapeutic and benefits them. And so we should just own that and be like, yeah, this one was upsetting. I'm going to go and reset for a few minutes like any normal human would need if they'd had an upsetting encounter with someone and then come back to it. Yeah, yeah, because I think yeah. it's important that as clinicians we show that we care because there have been times where I've had a, a sick child or I've had to deliver some bad news to a family of a young child and it's just, it's like the worst feeling in the world, but it's still not going to be as bad as the family that's receiving the worst news in the world. And so I take a step back and be like, okay, I just have to be the best that I can for this family and probably the worst day of their life. Yeah, absolutely. I Part of what I've done from my PhD is trying to help prepare paramedics in particular who do sometimes have to break bad news. Sometimes they'll attempt resuscitation or they'll find someone who's already died when they turn up to a job. And they, when I surveyed the paramedic students, I asked them, what are you most concerned about? And a lot of them were worried about being overwhelmed by emotion or by emotion making them behave in a way that they didn't consider to be professional. And that bothers me because I think that our emotions need to be considered tools. I just feel like maybe we've, in an attempt to try and protect ourselves and consider ourselves to work in this hero scape that we're in, we're frontline soldiers, all of this kind of rhetoric, we're shutting down our emotions in a way that actually isn't very helpful and probably, yeah, is doing us a disservice as clinicians sometimes. Because I think we don't emphasise enough the importance of the soft skills yeah, we like to call them non-technical skills because <laughs> softness is apparently not something people aspire yeah. to. I would say that I do make an effort to connect with people that I work with to be like, hey, I actually am interested in you as a person. And I think just that tiny little bit like makes it go so much further because I find that when I ask people for help or ask people to do something for me, it's just easy because they're like, yeah, I'll do it for you. Whatever, you did this for me this other day. So yeah, totally, I'll do it for you. Not like in a transactional way. If you know that somebody has got good intentions then you're going to do something for them, aren't you? The most complex and nuanced stuff we do is difficult to measure. It doesn't sort of meet this checklist of ideal practice that first you do this, then you do this, and you do have all the right anatomical landmarks and you do it in a certain way. Some of the stuff that is most meaningful, like you say, is around conversations, around assessing other people's needs around finding a way to listen to them and work out what's important to them. There's a really easy KPI or key performance indicator is how many patients you can get through the door or how many patients can you get an IV line in the first go, like you say. Yep. But there's no key performance indicator on number of difficult conversations you've had to have in a shift because that's going to take a lot more than just 20 minutes of your time. Yeah, absolutely. What do you yeah. think about these like ED target times that we used to have and now we don't have and people want to bring them back? And I'm like, you know, what's your opinion on that? I think it's it had some advantages in the way that it was implemented and that I think all emergency clinicians are uncomfortable with the idea of lying in beds for days in the emergency department. Like that's no one says that's okay. Or now we have got patients waiting for seven hours, eight hours, 10 hours to be seen by a doctor. 
that's not okay. So we did see some good changes in response to those targets, but they are still quite simplistic. And we ended up doing things to make it look like we were meeting KPIs, right? There's no doubt that we were gaming the system without a doubt. I say we, because I'm taking ownership of the team. It wasn't something that, that any ind individual clinician gets to decide about, but I would like to see more accountability for certainly the way that care has declined over the last couple of years and how bad things are. Because um, it's my understanding was that with the six hour target or whatever, if hospitals or emergency departments weren't meeting this, they were punished? There was certainly significant motivation to meet the targets, yeah. which means money, doesn't it? Yeah. It means if they're prepared to resource additional roles, do the things they did to help facilitate patient, reduce the impact of bed block, which is the main problem or one of the big problems, then yeah, certainly there must have been a financial incentive in order to have them justify investing. This morning I was listening to someone talking about labour shortages and they were a cafe owner. And obviously across the nation and around the world there's problems with labour shortages. And she was saying, oh, we're going to have to dial back on our provision. We might have to do like a coffee-only day. And I was like, but emergency departments can't do that. We can't say, oh, look, today we'll take patients, but we won't be offering any analgesia. Or today we'll only take heart attack strokes. We don't have a no vacancy sign to put out the front. So no matter how dire our staffing is, and some days it is dire, we still have to... Because we're, we're just rationing care yep, is what we we're doing. we absolutely are. And rationing care means things that people need to have done to have good health outcomes aren't being done. With the move to centralisation of Tefatu order and all that, what do you think about that in terms of impacts on the delivery and emergency department cares? Because when I looked into like the past, <laughs> I was like, oh, so I haven't been around on this earth for that long. And I also haven't been a doctor for that long. I haven't seen in my career that much change. But when I looked into the history of healthcare reforms over the last 30, 40 years, I was like, oh, so... It sounds like to me we had centralised care and then we decentralised it and then we centralised it again, then we decentralised it and now we've centralised it again. And oh, these the regional health authorities, that sounds like a really familiar thing. I believe we had that before. Anyway, what are your, what are your thoughts on Just that? For the record, I have not been around for all 30 to 40 years <laughs> no, of no, that no. history. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think that is an important acknowledgement, right, is that we need to acknowledge our history and what we've done before and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And that my experience of being on committees and so forth is that it's really important to understand the history of where you've been before you start making changes to go forward. And it's great that you can see that as a young doctor, as someone who hasn't seen decades and decades of, of changes and making the same mistakes again. I don't think that Fatu Ora is going to be a panacea for anything, but I want to be optimistic about some of the obvious advantages of centralisation. Speaking from a nursing perspective, we've been quite siloed in our hospitals. We haven't had the same sort of resources that, for example, some of our medical colleagues have had, sorry to say, to network and to have non-clinical space and time and professional development funds to be able to get together and share knowledge and processes so that we're not having to constantly reinvent the wheel. And I'm hoping that Te Aura will help with that 
it, I'm not sure that it has yet. You've got to be optimistic. With our training in medicine, we're kind of like forced to work in different places, change hospitals every three months, six mm. months, or whatever our training college tells us to do. Do you think that would be something that would be helpful for nurses is having more of a secondment to like different areas? It's certainly something that they've tried overseas. In New Zealand, it's a little bit tricky. Certainly during our training, one of the limitations that we have here in Auckland is we would like to be training more nurses, but we actually don't have enough clinical placements to increase the number of nurses going through training. And that's a major barrier, right? right? Like we need nurses to be able to go into healthcare settings and learn about provision of healthcare. And at the moment, there is a real shortage of those. And as it is, there's a bit of a a bun fight, it would be fair to say, between the universities and the various techs that are offering the courses in Auckland. There's just a lack of learning opportunities. And so it's very tight. And how are we going to train more nurses if there isn't somewhere for them to learn? Possibly one of the answers is that some of the rural and remote areas would love to have more student nurses, but of course the student nurses aren't located there. And we do know that a lot of international nurses want to work in Auckland because they know about Auckland because they just look up the biggest hospitals and they're attracted to a city that has some of the familiar kind of services and opportunities to meet other people from their country perhaps. So I was speaking to Carlton Irving, who was also on the podcast. I don't know what's happening at University of Auckland, but in University of Otago, so they're putting more students like in rural areas where they spend the whole year in a a rural setting. So they're doing more GP, urgent care, rural hospital medicine, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, is that something that could happen in nursing perhaps where one, a whole year, half a year or something, they get placed somewhere like that? It's not a realistic thing to ask someone who's doing a three-year nursing degree to do because there is so much in-class time and there's so much assignment work Mm. and things that they have to do in groups. And yeah, I don't, no, that's a very realistic option. I guess you could make an argument for a new graduate year or a, like an internship year where nurses have an opportunity to travel and are supported to work in different areas. I think there would be some potentially some... Like if there was like a grant where yep. like for six yep. weeks they get paid like, like a yep. stipend or something. So their living yep. costs are covered. Perhaps that's a good way to use money because that's not that expensive on the grand scheme of things if it's going to get us more nurses. And where they're needed, right? Like yeah. we, we're so desperately short of, of GPs in particular in, in those areas that are more remote and more rural. And nurses don't necessarily get that same opportunity to really get a good taste of something a bit different. One of the things I really valued about medical training is that we get to taste like a bit of mm. most things, very little things I didn't get to do. Yeah, I think quality clinical experience is really so important and that we, there is a bit of a limit on how much time the existing clinicians have to provide the mentorship and preceptorship, whatever you want to call it, that is is essential for new nurses, new doctors. If we were in a disaster situation where we had a, I don't know, massive earthquake or a natural disaster of some sort, you wouldn't be expecting in the middle of that for people to be like, okay, now we're going to turn this into a teaching session and would you like the student to have a go? And (laughs) hey, I'm going to talk through the anatomy of this because we're in a disaster. But actually sometimes it feels like that every day in ED. And a lot of us love learning in ED, you know, we love challenge, that we love learning, we love challenge. And that's part of the reason that a lot of ED clinicians are also good teachers, because we're passionate about that. I want to ask you a question, because this is not what I'm, what I know about. One of the problems with retaining nurses and also getting more nurses, right, in New Zealand is like pay. So like how much is a first year nurse paid if she's like working, let's say she's working on the ward in 
a hospital in Auckland. I wish I had that number off the top of my head, but they are paid. They're paid less than a police officer who spent 16 weeks at police school. That's crazy. Both, no offence to police officers who do an amazing job. Because both are important. And then there's that whole ad campaign of get better work stories for, for the police. And I'm like, no, no, no. I think nurses have better work stories. <laughs> ED, we do. De- yeah, no, I've got to say, actually, there's a lot of nursing work stories that would definitely qualify there. But And we do love the job. Like I said, we like caring for people, but we need to feed our families and pay our bills. And money is definitely one of the issues. I'm yeah, beyond upset about how long it's taking to settle the current pay dispute. I currently don't have a pay agreement, basically. My previous pay agreement has expired. I'm owed a whole lot of back pay. They can't agree on new rates of pay. As soon as we get paid more money, then obviously our primary care colleagues also deserve to be paid more money and they're already paid less than the nurses working in hospital. If you want someone to look after you when you're sick, we are going to need to pay nurses more. We're doing a three-year degree. It's expensive. It's hard work. It is an undervalued profession. I'm seeing them look after my family member now. And he had a very experienced nurse who must have been nursing for 20 plus years. And I could just see her moving in the bed space in a way that anticipated everything that he would need so that she had met those needs before he even had to ask for them. Preventing deterioration, anticipating symptom relief need. And most people don't appreciate how much knowledge she's accrued and how much expertise she's utilising in that setting. What I've noticed is that in certain places where nurses are given like looser reins, where it's, hey, we believe that you can do more, so do more those nurses are allowed to like develop and they become really highly skilled. So I'm talking like emergency departments, ICUs. Yeah, exactly. The things that nurses there do, I'm like, wow, amazing. And I've worked also in departments where it's not allowing the nurses to be able to develop their skills further being like, oh no, like this is actually like not like a skill for nurses. This is Mm. actually like a doctor's skill. For example, like I don't think you need a medical degree to put an IV line in a child. I don't believe that and some places where I'm like they don't necessarily take in like feedback from like the nursing staff I've been involved with around well-being and emergency departments it it, it was really clear that because it was done near the beginning of our COVID locked first COVID lockdown pretty much all nursing um, education just got canned that was it it was like no we're in a pandemic you can't do any education at all and As we've said, people who work in emergency departments, we love to learn. We want to learn. There's so much to learn. We're never going to know it all. It was like two years of medical students not being allowed to see patients who had anything that was remotely resembling COVID, regardless of whether or not we had PPE for them, which we did. We had PPE for them. And I was like, great. So we're going to raise a whole generation of junior doctors who, once they then tick over to becoming doctors, have no experience in managing respiratory conditions. Great. That sounds like an excellent idea. Yeah. So our cohort that have just finished their third year, they have been in COVID times effectively. And so they don't know any different really. And we were a bit overly conservative initially, where we were just like, oh, pull all the students out of everywhere. And it took a while to develop some processes and obviously making sure that people were fit tested and had PPE was, we realised, was essential and a good decision. But yeah, it's short-sighted to be saying, okay, we've got a staffing crisis, there's not enough nurses, so we can't afford to let nurses go off and learn more about what they're doing because it's also there as an essential part of us feeling satisfied in our jobs. My first job was working in an ICU and it was a very well-resourced environment. I had 12 weeks of supernumerary. 12 weeks? 12 (laughs) weeks. But there'll be someone watching her kind of face. I realise how 
fortunate I was. And instead, we've now got nurses who are just like starting on the ward. Everyone's too busy to teach them. And within six months, it's, oh, you're the most senior person on tonight. I know. I've got friends being like, oh, yes, I've been working in this place two years. And now I'm the senior nurse. And I'm like, oh, that's... Oh, that's that is not dangerous good. too. Like something that that a very important mentor, shout out to Nick Jeannie, taught me, is that about eighteen months, two years in, you you're Dunning Kruger effect kind of oh, kicks yeah. in, where you suddenly you get to the stage where you think, oh my god, I know so much. I just am so knowledgeable, and you have learned heaps. You've learned so much, but your confidence in yourself massively exceeds your actual competence. I realized that I was like, oh God, the more I learn, I'm like, oh, there's more stuff that I I don't don't know. know. Yeah. But, and that's really hard on those people who need to be able to have someone more experienced to support them. It bothers me that we've got so many really new nurses who are having to support each other without necessarily the experience to help you out with those conversations. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Something I've talked about with my partners, I've worked in a department where we had this system called an eye bleep system, where if your nurse needed something, they put on this app and then the junior doctor gets a notification that they need to either see this patient or chart a medicine or whatever. And I think it's like a great system because then the doctor gets like a message. They're not having to call back a random page number and wait for someone to pick up the phone, all that kind of stuff. And then the junior doctor can prioritize, okay, this is the important thing. This is the less important thing. I can do all of these in the same time between all the different 10 wards that I'm looking after or whatever. And I'm like, great. And then I moved to this new place and I was like, oh, okay. So there's no eye bleep system. So what I was doing was on a night shift was holding two different phones and getting calls back to back. And some calls are like, this patient is deteriorating. Come now. Sometimes they get calls where it's like, this patient is deteriorating. Should I call a code? And I'm like, oh, if you think you should call a code, please call a code and I'll be there shortly. And at the same time... (laughs) Your other phone is getting a call being like, oh, can you just chat some paracetamol? <laughs> Mary's fallen out of bed. Yeah, exactly. Or, Stuff or like Mr. that. Mr. Jones has had a bowel motion. Yeah. I, I question this. Like, why do we have this phone call only situation? Because if I'm in the middle of resuscitating a patient, I don't want to be getting phone calls about paracetamol, but I also don't want to miss a phone call about someone else that needs to be resuscitated. And the response that I'd had was that, oh, we did try it once, but what we found was that it de-skilled the nurses or something and we've had bad communication between nurses and doctors. And I'm like, where does that come from? Because I don't think that's an issue. I've never worked in an area where I had to page a doctor because I've only worked in ICU and ED. I had really good direct lines of communication. And like you say, I was given opportunities to professionally develop and to be quite autonomous, really. In the busy world that we're in, it is terrifying sometimes for nurses to communicate with doctors. And that's really Mm. important. You know, Mm. even the students that are coming through our undergraduate program now, I've realised that most of them have grown up without a phone in the house. And so actually some of them are quite anxious about talking on the phone. They've never had to talk to a stranger on the phone necessarily. These are new generation of people who are happier texting. And so I think probably there is value in texting. It would make a lot of sense. But yeah. What do you think about trend care? So trend care is this Thing, right, where <laughs> nurses have to take time out of their shift where they're caring for patients to put in all the things that they have done for the patient 
and will do for the patient and thinks that the next nurse will do for the patient. What's your opinion? So, yeah. So is it over engineering the, it, the situation? It is, so, yeah, it is a tool and it's a very blunt tool, but it is being used in some emergency departments around the country and it is showing that those emergency departments are massively understaffed and it's, it's creating a measure, like we were talking about, it's measuring that gap and it means that because it's retrospective, right? Like it says over the last six months or the last 12 months, you've been short X number of nurses. <laughs> and so they get that number of nurses funded. And so I guess we've been resistant to it for that very reason, because it's crappy. It, there's so many things I do in ED that wouldn't be measured. If I'm spending ages talking to someone who is in a family violence situation or something like that, it doesn't go into trend care at all. But on the flip side of that, we've been so resistant to it that nothing is being measured. Yeah. And what we're seeing where I have patients who haven't got up to the toilet in time, who haven't been kept warm, who have deteriorated, that's all, it's not being measured. <laughs> a cynical person could say that some departments have resisted taking it on because they know what a huge deficit it will show. But yeah, I think if we can inform the learning of the machine using big data, we can eventually make that a better tool. A lot of people have said, why are your nurses so much busier? Why do you need more nurses? And I know, and I mean, I have been nursing for 20-something years now, that the patients are getting more complex and sicker and their GPs only had 20 minutes to see them or couldn't see them at all for three weeks with their presenting complaint. And so we're having to spend a lot more time with them. But unless that's actually measured in an objective way and is something like trend care that's been validated and standardised and averaged okay, out. So, and, okay, so yeah. okay, maybe trend care is useful. I don't know. I just look at like the, the nurses who are doing it, they're just like... Yeah, oh, someone estimated it would take like a whole in order to for the amount of labour that would be required in my emergency department, which is a really big emergency department. It would practically take a whole nurse to be like accurately entering all of the data, just entering data. My God. Yeah, it is hugely time consuming if it gets us more nurses. At the moment, we're filling in forms that say, hey, I didn't feel safe at work today because I had to look after 18 different patients. And we are filling those forms in because we're really concerned. And I think probably filling in a trend care form that said, this is the care that should have happened and the amount of resource that was required would be better than that. Okay. Well, yeah. maybe trend care can I be I feel good like I'm selling trend care because, yeah, I, we have, it's been discussed a lot and particularly emergency nurses are like, this is not, how do you measure what we're doing? It's so not like the wards. But that has counted against us because we've failed to show how much need we have for more staff. and We haven't found a better tool. think about making the emergency departments like more healthy so we were talking about it because I saw you shared something about green spaces and stuff like that what do you think if we put like in a big trellis or hung some monsteras from the ceiling (laughs) yeah I think infection control probably wouldn't like that also we work in a basement right so the monsteras are going to get no light that's true but I did discover during COVID that I was tending to go outside to have my breaks Mm. and that actually that was really nice and one of the things that in our department people have repeatedly asked for is access to outdoor space. A lot of emergency departments are in basements. That's for a good reason. But it does mean that we don't see the light of day at all during the show. No, I have no idea what time it is. It's very <laughs> weird. And hospitals are being designed now with more natural light coming in because we've realised actually that has measurable value to well-being. But yeah, for me, it's always just been especially with shift work, like making sure I do expose myself to the outdoors. <laughs> <clears throat> Fully clothed, expose myself <laughs> to the outdoors, right? What do you think about, like, you know, um, relaxing background music? Yeah. 
It would beat the soundtrack that sometimes occurs on a Saturday night, right, of the weird, strange noises that people who are in an intoxicated state yeah. can make. Yeah. I do think we could learn something from from Child House. Like when you go across to the Starship ED and it's so nice. Yeah. Like, you know, there's some people where I'm like, oh, yes, you would benefit from a play therapist. Yeah, you would benefit from absolutely. a play therapist. Yeah. We don't need to drug everybody. Like yeah, we can distract people with an iPad and a some bubbles. Maybe some people would just like a lollipop. I think so. I honestly think there is a lot that we could learn from that. Some departments have done overseas, like newly built departments have done amazing things too. And even little things like we've put decals on the walls in the fauna rooms so that they're not looking at this sterile. sterile, yeah, really institutional place. Instead, they're looking at a picture of pihar or whatever it is. It's going to be better than just a painted wall. What do you think about hospital gowns? Because in paediatrics, right, I never have a patient in a hospital gown unless their clothes are gone for some reason because, I don't know, they've been in a trauma or something. Have you ever worn a hospital gown? I have not. Okay. Yeah. Anyone that has worn a hospital gown will tell you that it is really dehumanizing. It is. It is a horrible garment. We pretty much have a policy that we have to get everyone changed into a gown. And I really disagree I, with yeah, that. Yeah. I understand. I There's some safety issues. I have a really good story that obviously I'm modifying the details of so as not to be identifying. But when I was working at triage years ago, I had a young person present with a broken fingernail. And we were so busy. We had people sitting in the waiting room, queuing out the doors, ambulances queuing out the doors. And I was stressed and feeling pressure to rapidly triage them. But I felt something wasn't quite right about the presentation. And I took them into a little room that we have for assessing people at triage. And I thought, I'm just going to ask some more questions and try and develop that rapid rapport that we have to as clinicians. And when she gave me permission to do her blood pressure, I realised she was in baggy clothing and she pulled her sleeve of her sweatshirt up and there were obvious bruises that we recognised mm. associated with abuse and assault. And if I hadn't partially unclothed her, I would never have realised that there were more injuries, that there was more to it. And subsequently I did ask her permission to get her fully undressed and examine her fully because she had multiple injuries Mm. or minor injuries. So there wasn't a medical reason to need to treat those injuries, but obviously there was a social reason then to address her risk and vulnerability and refer her on. And so weirdly uncovering patients sometimes does reveal things that that you realise you're glad you stripped their clothes off them. How do you think that we could do things better? I think there is some appreciation that it's worth investing in navigators that coordinate care and for I know at Auckland there's some really important initiatives around health navigation for Maori patients in particular as a group that are being underserved but there probably is also a role for that for other patients with who are managing complex chronic diseases and that takes money and resourcing. I think nurses are sometimes a really good cohort of people to be doing that job, that they already are doing that job in better resourced areas like transplant medicine but that it yeah, there could be more of that going on, recognising that our resources are so limited that a lot of that coordinate, care coordination could be done by experienced nurses and ultimately saving time for the doctors who are already so busy with clinics and people are waiting months to see them. If that care was better coordinated and people were turning up to clinics and knew why they were going to their clinics and all of that kind of stuff, that would be better. There has unfortunately been a kind of a move towards a lot of that booking and coordinating and all of that kind of stuff going to 
non-clinical people. And while some of them have amazing skills and are working really hard, without an appreciation of the bigger picture of the health situation of that person, things get missed. With it being like election year next year, if if a particular party could do three policies that you'd vote for, what are the three things that would buy your vote in terms of health? That's the sort of question you should have given me a week in advance so I could prepare for it. (laughs) Three policies. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we need to invest a lot more in training nurses and doctors and allied health. Shout out to psychologists who are Mm -hmm. also really short at the moment, Mm -hmm. right? So we need to spend more money on training and we need to spend more money on retaining. And that means paying all of us better and ensuring that our working conditions are okay, acceptable. We endure a lot. We endure working at three in the morning and running around even though our bladders are full and our tummies are empty but yeah I think working in a safe environment and being paid adequately is really important these aren't really policies eh? these are outcomes it's the sort of thing they say they'll do yeah there's going to be something in there about equity right because like I say the most vulnerable groups you could pick any number of vulnerable groups and you have talked about many of those groups in your amazing podcast but yeah more investment because wow so much value for money right the more money you put in a child the more you get later on absolutely and I mean I could argue that even though I work in the ED I would love to see far more money going into GPs and primary health because you can prevent a lot of those patients coming to me if they just had five minutes longer with their GP or they could see a GP this week they would instead of presenting to us and that GP if they had five minutes longer ten minutes longer whatever you need GPs they can also prevent the next admission by addressing the problems that they can see coming it just bothers me that they're like oh my goodness every year we've invested more in healthcare but I'm like have you not seen that everything costs more even if we we're just treating the same same demographic, which we're not. They're getting older. People people are living longer and we're getting great at medicine and especially in pediatrics. Kids that never used to survive are surviving, but that's expensive. Yeah. Like they're living with complexity. They're living with problems we never used to see in young adults because they never lived long enough. And that costs money. Yeah, like 30, that 40 that. years ago, there probably wasn't that many people who they survived were, to like no, their 50s. They were dead. Yeah, they were right. dead. And it's cheaper. If people die <laughs> younger, and sorry, I live with someone who wouldn't be here without all that technology, but you have to acknowledge that there's a huge cost to that. And yeah, it's the health that we enjoy now is more expensive than it used to be. The problem is I see that a lot of money, yes, we want the expensive drugs. And yes, the expensive drugs are good, but also we're pretty bad at doing like the basic stuff and it is tricky and I do have some ethical issues which is really interesting coming transplant medicine is bloody expensive and the pharmacology associated with it's hugely expensive but how do you measure those outcomes against that amount of money invested in preventative health care and that's another reason I don't want to be in politics how do you decide how do you decide there is a limited amount of money do I spend it on this new thing that might save the lives of people who used to die from this condition or do I spend it on this thing that will decrease the morbidity and improve the general life and decrease the chance of them going to prison and all that other stuff that we do when we invest in kids and their health. I don't want to be the person that makes that decision, but you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Yeah. Healthcare is more expensive because people are more complicated and have more interventions, more medicines, more things than they ever had before. Just paying a little bit more each year isn't going to keep on top of that. I wish we were better at doing the basic stuff. Yeah. Funding 
better primary care. In pediatrics, we see a lot of kids with rheumatic fever. And you shouldn't be. Like, we shouldn't be. It's a third world country a, yeah. kind of disease, right? And so it's the classic young Māori, Pacifica, low socioeconomic position families. And I'm like, if we could prevent somebody from getting rheumatic fever, we could save so much money if we just put a little bit more money in mm. having better care, yeah. better environment for the kids. I've had a patient who, a relatively young adult, who'd come in with a severe heart condition. And then I took one look at this person, a young Māori man who was like, oh, I was a bit sore last night, but my partner said I should just come in. And so we called an ambulance and I was like, oh yeah. And he didn't look flash. He looked awful. And I took one listen to his chest and I was like, oh, like there's a new raging murmur going on. (laughs) And he seems like a pretty staunch Māori guy. And I thought, I bet this guy had rheumatic fever and didn't tell anybody when he was a kid. And now he's had rheumatic fever again. And he's popped one of the heartstrings. And he did. And I'm like, the amount of resource required to look after this man from now on is going to be so much more than what we could have done to prevent Prevent it it. for all these kids. But again, we have to, the onus is on medicine to prove that X dollars (laughs) invested here saved us Y dollars (laughs) invested there. And that's a lot harder to do. And people are a lot less motivated to fund preventative medicine than they are to do research that shows that drug X will help this because I want to take people, now. sometimes I like to think maybe we don't actually need that much money in healthcare. Maybe we won't need as much money in hospitals. Maybe we need more money in a healthier like environment. You know, I feel like so much of what we see in the emergency departments is environmental stuff, whether it's poor diet or poor living conditions or smoking, alcohol, all that kind of stuff. And the unhealthy environment that's driving mental health conditions like up the wazoo. Interestingly, as a nurse, that's the difference between medicine and nursing is that I would still consider healthy housing to be part of healthcare. Like I know it's social determinants of health and all that kind of stuff, but you know, what we're doing in hospitals is disease care (laughs) and accident care. But what we're actually doing in the community when we're investing in people's housing and their well-being is the real healthcare. And a lot of that is done by nurses and teachers and social workers. So yeah, I totally agree that it's very easy for the hospital to soak up all of the funding and very appealing to fund these new drugs and surgeries and amazing things that we're doing. More ICU beds. Yes, yeah. Oh my God, the thing about ICU beds. everything. Oh yeah. That became such a big thing during COVID and I'm like... And I'm like, do you not know how long it takes to train an ICU nurse? Do you know how many ICU nurses you need for one bed? Yeah, <laughs> a bed with a ventilator is actually less useful. But yeah, I yeah. Anyway, thank goodness it didn't come to that. Turned out that investing in vaccines was actually the smartest thing we could have done, and we did. So yeah. Okay, one final question before we wrap it up. If you could transport yourself to anywhere in the world at any time point in the past or present, where would you go? I really don't want to go backwards because women's rights, um, (laughs) there's a lot of issues that I feel like I wouldn't, benefit from there. You also maybe you don't want to go into the future because like Handmaid's I'm scared Tale. about the future. Handmaid's yep. Tale. Yep. I am scared about the future. I feel like I'm okay at the current position I'm in. I absolutely love to travel. 
and I haven't been able to travel for years, obviously, because COVID. So I'm going to say I just want to go to Singapore, which is one of my favorite places to travel and maybe eat at a hawker market. Oh, yes. It's just amazing You food, can eat whatever you want. Really so many cheap, so many things to try. Yeah. And maybe you can like organize for some friends to come with me so that we can all like try different things from the different stalls. Yeah. But maybe... Yeah, maybe in a year when we've got everyone vaccinated with um, the new bivalent vaccines and an even better one. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much for coming to our podcast, Natalie. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti or waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. You and I will have to start our own not very political party for people that (laughs) don't really like politics and, yeah... We'll see how we go. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Election year 2023. Watch this space.